evening to you. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. This evening, if you're with us tonight, you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now, and um, wave to them and they'll get a Bible into your hands tonight. Please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you. Uh, Next uh, Sunday night, we'll be celebrating a 30-year anniversary of the fellowship. It will be just a great celebration of God's goodness and His faithfulness. And uh, all of you, each of you are invited, in case you haven't been hearing about it. Some of you attend on the Sunday evenings, but not the morning. And we want you to know that uh, that's coming up. And it might be a good idea... Uh, just for those of you who run a little late, you come however we can get you. We're happy to have you here. But on that night, it might be good to head out about 15 minutes early, get in here a little bit early, and we'll get rolling. I know you won't want to miss anything that's going to happen from the opening uh, bell of things, and so we look forward to a wonderful time next week. We remember that the Sermon on the Mount is instruction by Jesus to us as his disciples concerning how we are to represent him and represent the kingdom of God in the world today. It's interesting that the Sermon on the Mount isn't um, supremely preached against kind of the context of secularism or uh, darkness or atheism or agnosticism, but this sermon is preached against a backdrop in Israel of religion. And it is how we are to conduct ourselves in a way that allows people to see Christianity as distinctive not only from a pagan and an obviously dark culture, but also how the world can see Christianity as different from religion and even religion that the Jewish rabbis, principally the scribes and the Pharisees, had turned the law and the prophets into. So this makes us unique in all of the world, not only in the secular world, but also in the religious world, and necessarily so. We are to shine very different in both of those realms because Christ is very different from what man puts together in both of those realms. He picks, we pick things up in verse 16, and Jesus uh, speaks about fasting, and he, uh, this instruction concerning fasting follows his instruction concerning prayer. You remember at one time in Jesus' ministry that he was up on the Mount of Transfiguration, came down uh, with uh, Peter, James, and John, came down. His disciples were struggling to cast a demon out of a child, and Jesus cast the demon out. They asked why they weren't able to do it, and uh, Jesus had rebuked them earlier for their faith. But he says this kind comes out only by prayer and by fasting. And so we see even in the Sermon on the Mount, prayer and fasting united together. There are certain things that happen in our Christian life, whether it's spiritual warfare or whatever it might be, where a time of fasting is warranted in it being coupled together with prayer to come against some situation or to seek the Lord concerning some circumstance that's happening within our lives. The Jews knew all about fasting. Again, he's talking to a crowd that is raised in a religious environment. They fasted as Jews at least one day out of the year on the Day of Atonement. Uh, The Jewish rabbis of Jesus' day also had uh, all observant Jews beyond the teaching of the Bible had them fasting two days a week. I think it was a Monday or Thursday, something like that. And so there was a lot of fasting going on, but apparently a lot of the fasting that was going on in the kind of religious realm was in order that people would see that I'm fasting and then consider me a spiritual person uh, and the fasting wasn't being done in order to break through in some particular situation. So we're to be different than even the religious realm in these kind of practices. And so he said, moreover, when you fast, no Christian should consider fasting to be some odd, extraordinary practice. Jesus assumes it as, a, as something that will be a part of our lives and sooner or later probably necessarily. When, moreover, when you fast, 
Do not be like the hypocrites uh, with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. And so you come into work in the morning and you kind of got this grimace on your face and, and you look kind of in pain and nobody sees you, you know, usually in that condition. What are you doing? And you say, ah, oh, that's precisely why I'm putting this whole act on. So I can tell them, listen, brother, don't tell anybody else, but I'm fasting. And then they'll think, wow. Somebody's fasting, you know, here. And so they, they, the whole idea is to be thought of spiritually by other people. Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. In other words, here's the motivation behind. Uh, it's a good activity. Fasting is a good activity. But it would be spoiled if the motivation isn't right. So if my motivation is to be thought of, is fasting in order to be thought of as highly spiritual by other people, and then that gets accomplished, then I have the reward. That's what I'm aiming at. That's what I get. But I don't get anything more. And I certainly don't tap into the real power uh, of fasting and the intent for fasting. So he gives us our instruction concerning what we're to do. But you, us as Christians, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. I mean, head out the door on your way to work or school or whatever you're doing around the house and look like you normally do so that you don't appear to men to be fasting, but your Father who is in the secret place, uh, and, uh, but to your Father who is in the secret place and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So if my idea is that I fast in order that he would take note of it and, um, and be, get, get involved in what I'm fasting over, then God says he will make note of that and he will answer it. And so there's to be a heart reality behind the outward practice. Then he goes on to talk a little bit about uh, the laying up of treasures for us as Christians. He said, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth um, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So we're... What a treasure is, the word in, in the Greek language, it speaks of what you would put in a strong box, what you would put in a safe, what you would put in a savings account. It speaks about the resources that we uh, have that where we have more money or we have more material uh, goods or uh, wealth than we, uh, than we need to supply our daily needs for food, clothing, and shelter. So it's talking about extra in our lives. And um, not, a, not every Christian has extra in their lives. Well, everybody does have, in, certainly in this culture, at least a little something extra because there's the opportunity to lay up treasures. And he's talking about material, giving material, giving money. And uh, so everyone obviously has the ability to do this. But he says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth. So every Christian, when God gives a little bit extra, what he's saying is there's nothing wrong with a savings account. There's nothing wrong with having a retirement account. I can quote you all kinds of verses in the book of Proverbs that speak not only of the freedom to have these kind of things, but even the wisdom behind those kind of things. But we should not as Christians take all of the extra that God brings into our life and hoard it unto ourselves where all that we all of the income that we generate for our lives gets spent on I me and my and never gets given away for the expansion of the kingdom and so that's what he's talking about here don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth and then he talks about uh, the weakness of that where we we hoard it all unto ourselves and uh, because uh, he tells us here that where the moth can uh, where in rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So what do moths ruin? They ruin clothing, which was, a, um, which was a form of wealth in those days. In those days to have two or three, uh, to have two change, one or two changes of clothing, you were pretty, doing really good. And, uh, and so uh, talking about clothing beaten, eaten away, rust destroying talks about miracle material things that wear out, break down, uh, you know, and, and run out of gas, so to speak. And then the wealth of the world where thieves can break in and steal. And so that's the weakness of wealth that is uh, where my treasure is completely invested in this world. You can't keep it secure. There's no security in that 
uh, investment. And so the moths, they can get a hold of things. Rust is wearing everything out. Thieves break in and steal. Oftentimes they're in the federal government, unfortunately. But I only say that partially tongue-in-cheek. The stock market can blow up overnight. Um, the government can devalue the currency overnight. The government can tax overnight. There's so much uncertainty in the world today that if we aren't a generation that understands how uncertain riches are uh, today, then uh, we're not paying attention. But he gives us an, our instruction rather than taking everything that is, uh, is ours, hoarding it unto ourselves, he said, but... Uh, In contrast, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so we are to take some portion of what is extra related to our lives and make sure that that is invested in the expansion of the kingdom. That is, includes giving to the local church that a person attends, uh, supporting uh, missionaries, supporting uh, parachurch organizations like the Gospel Mission or the Modesto Pregnancy Center, etc., etc., etc. These kind of things where we are invested in the advancement of the kingdom of God uh, in this world. And when whatever money we give toward these things in the name of the Lord, then uh, that treasure is laid up in heaven. It is secure from either being eaten up by moths or rusting out or being stolen. That's the only secure place that a treasure can be uh, placed in this earth, is given to the kingdom of God in some way, and then that treasure awaits us in heaven. And then he gives us kind of a dividend. We're talking about money. I hope that it's not too clever. You're not used to clever from me. Uh, So here's one of the dividends of handling our money in this way, verse 21. For, here's a reason word for the commandment that Jesus gives here, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it's a truth about life, and it's a truth about every single one of us. The more we invest in the kingdom of God and give to the things of the Lord, the more the greater interest we will have in heaven and in the kingdom of God and in eternal things. You take an individual, you may be one of those people tonight, where you are invested in the stock market. How closely do you follow the stock market? Daily, just about, probably. What's it doing today, even in the broad way? Did it go up a few points or today up 400 points and down 600? I mean, it's a volatile thing right now. But whatever we're invested in, we keep an eye on that. We have an interest in it because that's where our investments are. Somebody heavily um, invested in real estate is constantly keeping track with the value of real estate. How is their investment doing? As we invest in the kingdom of God and give to that, then our focus will be upon the kingdom of God. How are the missionaries doing in Mali? How are the missionaries doing in uh, Europe? How are they doing in Russia? What kind of persecution is going on in the Middle East and in North Africa right now? And what it does is a byproduct of that is it makes us very concerned and current related to the body of Christ, which is a wonderful thing because that's God's concern uh, in the world as well. So it isn't just a matter of, well, you know, we do all the giving. Of course, God provides everything to us. We do all of the giving, and what's in it for me? Ah, being heavenly-minded. In a materialistic society like we're in, we need all of the help we can get for our heart to be fully invested in the world. And then in speaking about treasure... Jesus goes on and says, The lamp of the body is the eye. And if therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body uh, will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Uh, I've been, the last couple of months, I've been listening to Dylan's album, Slow Train Coming, at least four or five cuts off of it over and over and over again. And uh, I love that you're going to have to serve somebody and uh, change my way of thinking. All these, all these uh, old wonderful songs that were an important part of my early Christian life. And then I'm listening to a lot of Lawrence Welk now, too, by the way. He's, well, he's a little, uh, the gospel version of the... <laughs> 
And then, of course, I've got what all of you already have is, you know, I've got the whole full seven, seven CD set of accordion worship um, and, and thoroughly enjoying that at the moment as well. But the fact of the matter is we convince ourselves, and nowhere is this deception greater than as it relates to money and this idea that we can think that we can serve both money and God. And uh, one of those two, like in anything, something's going to become the master passion of my life. And the master passion of my life, we've got a saying in the world today, don't we? Follow the money. You want to identify a person's master passion in their life, follow the money and follow their discretionary time, and you will discover what that is. There's something about money in how we deal with it that is quite revelatory concerning us. And so you can't serve the one or the other. A person that is not in any way laying up treasure in heaven in any way ought to look very, very hard at who and what they worship in this life if they are are given extra in life and none of it ever translates into the kingdom of God and into God's work. When he talks about the light of the body is the eye, the eye being good, this is talking about a person whose uh, vision, their focus of their life is on the eternal, on the kingdom of God. Again, this is a benefit of being this kind of a person related to our money. It gives us a, a... a, a pure heart, a heart that is light and uh, rather than uh, uh, the evil eye that he talks about here. Your eye is bad in verse 23. That's the eye that is set completely on materialism, selfishness. This is all I care about is the material realm and uh, my whole focus is on that. My focus is not upon the spiritual realm at all or the kingdom of God. Then God looks at that and says that whole body will then be full of darkness. It is a waste of vision, and it is a waste of uh, spiritual vision, a waste of a heart and a mind for a person to live their entire life focused on, as a Christian, focused on material things and to never get their eyes set properly upon the spiritual realm. Sometimes people get uncomfortable talking about money, so let me just take care of it. Guys, let's take the offering right now, and we're going to... People are so uncomfortable with it that sometimes when they talk about these kind of things, your treasure and this, then they'll start to talk about treasure as being your time and being this and being that and this kind of a deal, and it's like we get super apologetic to talk about money. No, it's talking about money. It's talking about money. There's something about money that really gets to the core of where we are. And, uh, and, uh, and one of the, I think one of the great reasons that God has us as Christians give of our tithes and of our offerings is because every time we give money away, we give away our selfishness. And if you're anything like me, you've got a lot of selfishness to give away. And it, and it keeps us focused on the eternal the kingdom of God. Again, it looks like somebody's trying to take our money. Gee, God doesn't need our money at all. Wouldn't it be a terrible thing if I lived my whole life and at the end of my life as a Christian, I never got to invest a penny of my money into the kingdom of God? It was all just more pasta and more pizza and the next car that I wanted or the next this. What a horrible life it would be. It is such a privilege that God allows us. He blesses us with extra. That extra may be three pennies, but it's extra, and it counts as three million for somebody else. And to be able to take that and invest it in the only kingdom that is going to outlive this heavens and this earth. I'm thankful that he talks about these things. Now he moves on to the subject of worry, which is something that we really don't have to spend any time on. Again, you know, my dear friend Pastor Garth Hatterholt over there at Shelter Cove, they need to, you know, read about worry and other Christians in the community. But us, you know, we really are, well, you know. We're not troubled by, you know, these mundane kind of spiritual things that afflict other people. Of course... The tongue is thoroughly in cheek. Every single one of us worries to one degree or another. We worry about security. We worry about food, clothing, security, and tomorrow. That's what we worry about. 
And so Jesus knows us very, very well, and so he's going to talk about worry for us as Christians in the kingdom of God. No Christian who lives a life dominated by fear and worry is a very good advertisement for the kingdom of God because it's a reflection on God and our Heavenly Father. And so very valuable instruction here. So he says, therefore, I say to you, don't worry about your life. What you will eat, of course, that's what we, one of the things we worry about. Am I going to have enough to eat? Or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, your clothing. Is not life more, uh, more than food and the body more than clothing? Well, there goes the whole American economy collapsing. It got us convinced that all it's about is food and clothing, and, uh, but it isn't. And so the Lord talks about how pinpoints the, the things that we worry about, the necessities in life. Now, knowing that we worry about food, he says, all right, here's the solution. The solution is to learn from the birds. He said, look at the birds of the air. And the idea, the word look means to look at intently, study. He said, look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So look at the tremendous advantage we have over birds. I am a bird lover. I'm like Mr. Wilson in the Dennis the Menace uh, cartoon. It's something. You get older and you don't know what's going to end up gripping your heart. But I love to watch them because it reminds me of this passage because I can be prone to worry about things. And so you look and we study the bird and we look at the bird. Birds are industrious, don't they? But God has set up the whole creation and then he has placed birds within the context of that creation and he has provided for them. Now, you never see a lazy bird. I have never seen a lazy bird where they're just like up in the nest, feed me, feed me. Somebody's putting like a grape in their mouth, you know, one after another. No, they're very industrious and working and looking around, but God supplies a context in which he in the creation supplies for them. But they don't have the capacity that we have. We have the ability to store. We have the ability to sow. We have the ability to reap. I don't, I don't know of any bird farmers that you, that, that anyone might know of. So we have a tremendous advantage over them with the ability to sow seed, reap a harvest, store the harvest, plan for the, the dispersal of the food and the eating of it. And yet here we have all of these advantages over the bird, and yet the bird is well taken care of, and God declares, listen, I'm going to take care of you as well. Are you not of more value than them? God loves his creation. God created it, and uh, I'm sure he has a fond affection for birds. Uh, but you and I as human beings have been created in the image of God, we have done the greatest thing that we can ever do to honor the heart of God the Father, and that is to put our faith in His Son. He loves us, and He's going to keep us fed. He said, which of you, are, uh, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? A cubit is 18 inches. Anybody been able to add 18 inches? If I could add 18 inches to my height by worrying... Uh, Steve Kerr could have subbed me in for Bogut after game three. Come on, Bogut, hold on to the ball. And don't throw the ball away over and over and over again. You're in the NBA Finals. I'm not playing hoops at the YMCA. I hardly watched the series. I mean, I didn't, I, it didn't bother me at all. But if I could add 18 inches to my height, I would have had a chance at the NBA and the whole thing. We can't add by worrying a cubit to his stature. So the point is, is that worrying never accomplishes anything. A famous quote related to that is that worrying is like sitting in a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. And that's the truth about it. It gives us something to do, but it doesn't accomplish anything in terms of solving the cause of our worry. I remember reading a quote once as a cure for worry um, is to wear a pair of shoes that are two sizes too small. It'll take your mind off of anything else in your life. Listen, I'm not saying it came from the Bible. It was somebody's idea here. 
but better to do it God's way. So why do you worry about clothing? Now he moves on to this. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And it's something in the spring, isn't it? California, so much of the world, you see these wildflowers. Israel is like that in the, in the spring. The wildflowers begin to come out. Lilies of the field, beautiful. And you look at a flower up close, it's, it's amazing. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, and yet they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And so Solomon, of course, one of the wealthiest, most powerful man in the world at his time. He never went to the closet, put on an outfit, and uh, was ever adorned with greater beauty than the way that God uh, adorned uh, the lilies. And so, uh, so the Lord goes on and says, Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field and the lilies, ultimately, just like in California, that gets arid in the Middle East, and pretty soon they die, and they would then use those uh, plants to then throw them into the fire in order to get a fire started for cooking. And so that's what he's talking about here. And, and he says, uh, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and then tomorrow it's thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And therefore do not worry, saying, what shall I eat or drink? Uh, what, I, what shall I eat? We eat, or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For all of these things the Gentiles seek. Everyone saved and unsaved needs these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. And he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, some of us have such a tendency towards worry that when you listen to me teach something like this and you say, well, listen, I'm not supposed to worry here. That's going to free a lot of time up in my life. And so what should I do with all of my spare time? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these other things will be added unto you. One of the great things about serving the Lord, discovering, not just being saved, but discovering what his call is upon my life and then immersing myself in that calling, is that it introduces us into such an intensity of life that it makes us forget about everything else that would tend to, you know, come in like a torrent of water and overwhelm us. So sometimes we need a strength of experience in our life that is so strong that it takes our attention off of what would uh, the, the things that would normally bog us down, including worry and uh, serving the Lord, growing in the things of the Lord, go deeper in the things of the Lord. All of those things are a better use of time. And then he says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And so here's his instruction. This is our Savior instructing us that tendency to worry about tomorrow. He says, no, focus on today. Today's the day that we have. Today's the day that we can control by his grace. And don't venture off into the next day in terms of worry. God gives us the grace that we need in our lives today for today. He does not give us the grace uh, to, for what we will face tomorrow today. So if I'm going to take on tomorrow and the day after and the week after and a month after that, then I'm going to take on concerns in life that I don't have the grace to process or to carry. And so it comes down to one day at a time, what can I do today? And related to the kingdom of God, walking with God, addressing the situations in my life. And then God promises, you are not without a heavenly father. I'm going to take care of you. And uh, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but probably most of us in this room uh, have more than two sets of clothing in our home. Uh, most of us probably have a spare can of tuna fish or even spam in the cupboard, you know. So God is taking care of us, and what he's always done, he will always do for us. And so addressing uh, powerfully and I think wonderfully this subject of worry, this thing that wants to afflict all of us, but some of us are more prone to than others. In chapter 7, verse 1, he goes on and declares, Judge not that you be not judged. 
And he says, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. So Jesus calls on us not to judge other people or to judge one another. Now, what this doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that we don't um, observe what people are doing, that it doesn't mean that we aren't looking at their life and coming to conclusions related to their actions or their words. He's going to talk later in the Sermon on the Mount about knowing a tree by its fruit. He's going to tell us in just a moment not to cast our pearl before swine and, uh, and before dogs. So we, we have to judge on some level in order to obey those commandments. So often when a person is not a Christian or they're a backslidden Christian and you say something to them about what the Word of God says about their life and what they ought to be doing here and you confront them related to their sin, this is one of the verses they have memorized. You know, uh, the, you, who, you who are without sin, cast the first stone is one that they memorize. And the other one is judge not that you be not judged. And the idea is that, you know, we never judge as Christians. But the fact of the matter is we do judge. And the Bible says that we are to test all things and hold fast to that which is true. We are testing all of life continually by the Word of God. But as we do that, we aren't judging the situation. God's Word is judging the situation. What he's talking about here is that I cannot judge another person's thoughts or their motives. I can't know why. I can know that you do something. I can know that you did that. I can know that you said that. But I can't know necessarily why you did, what your motive was behind it, or what you were thinking behind it. Sometimes even talking about here the idea of, you know, being spiritual or trying to appear to be spiritual. Sometimes somebody can do something and their motives are pure, their heart is pure, and then a person can look at that and say, they just did that to be seen by other people and thought of as spiritual. And so we can be ascribing a motive or judging their heart in a way we don't know anything about. And Jesus says, don't do it. The body of Christ can cannibalize itself overnight if we don't obey this issue where we look and we say, I know what they're thinking. I know what their motive is here. This is the only reason a person like that could do something like this and, and not to judge because when we finally f- find out the full picture, what was really going on, we realize we're a million miles away from properly understanding where they were coming from. There are so many nuances to uh, every circumstance in life. Perhaps the main thing that he's condemning here, probably the main thing that he's condemning here, is a critical spirit. The kind of person where, and, and there's a, it's called the flesh, and every one of us has the flesh. One day we're going to have a new body and we're not going to have the flesh. This ridiculous thing that we're carrying around that fights against us and our love for God and our desire to walk with God. But um, there is something perverse about the flesh that likes to find fault in people. I'm told that women can be catty toward one another. I don't know anything about I don't say that I'm judging, aren't I? Because <laughs> I hate to violate the Bible right in the pulpit. But it's not just women, it's, it's everybody. But there's this thing that's just... And it's strong within our culture where we look and somebody's smarter than us, somebody's more beautiful than we are, uh, somebody's more gifted than we are, somebody has more than we are, and somehow we feel like we've got to look at them with a critical eye. We've got to find some fault in them, uh, that they are just flesh and blood, and now I've found the fault in them, and all right, now I know that they're not perfect, and this is where, you know, they've got a room to grow, and this is a problem within their life as you know as if somehow um, there, there's just a perverse that look, perversity that looks for that and we are not to do that not to have a critical spirit towards one another it's driving me a little crazy right now in the body of Christ as a whole and um, and I think with what's called sometimes the discernment ministries and some of you probably go on these blogs that just shred churches and pastors and 
uh, ministries, and it's like, here's the latest one they're going to attack, and they find this and they find that, and sometimes there's legitimate cause for concern and things do need to be fixed, but I look at it and I think to myself, you are applying a standard of perfection to that person. Whoever told you you could expect perfection of anyone other than Christ, where did that ever enter into your mind? And if ministries are made up of imperfect people, then how in the world can you be shocked and surprised when you find Christian people in ministry doing the very best that they can, and yet they're still not perfect. And yet I feel like I've done some great deed for God in identifying the fact that they stubbed their toe and missed the boat on that particular issue. And there's a, this spirit will destroy uh, the body of Christ, it will destroy a Christian witness, it will destroy a local church. It's very serious business. We are not to have a critical attitude toward one another. It is one of the blessings of growing older. There are few blessings, physical in nature, about growing older. One of the blessings of growing older in this age is you can add like a Bose speaker system to your television so that you can hear it and so that you can properly yell at Andrew Bogut when you're watching the game on television. But one of the things that is great about growing older and getting significant life experience is to realize, yeah, there's a lot of people that can be pretty crummy in life, but life on planet Earth sooner or later becomes very, very hard for most people. This is not an easy place. I'm not trying to bum out everybody that's in their 20s and 30s and going, I'm not understanding what he's saying. You live long enough and you'll find out. And it produces compassion in our heart for people. Life is hard for a lot of people. And they've already got enough critical eyes on them. And the body of Christ is to be someplace where they come and we are loved and we are accepted and people put up with us and help us along as we're all growing into the image of Christ. He said, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. So don't judge because what you'll find is the same kind of judgment that you meet out on other people, they will judge you back in the same way. So if I am a person who finds it necessary to find fault with another person, their defense mechanism then is going to be to find fault in you in order to uh, spoil you as a credible witness. And then the time comes when you stub your toe and you're in need of grace and mercy, then you will find, we will find that we will get back what we have given to other people. And if we've been highly judgmental toward other people, we will find they will sometimes be less than merciful uh, toward us. If we've been very merciful to other people and, uh, and non-judgmental toward them, then when we need their mercy, when they, we need them to not be judgmental of us, you know, at the moment in our situation, we find that they will, uh, they'll measure that back to us. And why do you look at the speck? It's talking about a piece of sawdust. Why do you look at the piece of sawdust in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank or the gigantic beam in your own eye? It's kind of a uh, interesting picture, isn't it? So the capacity that we have now, why would Jesus say this? It's like, Jesus, why are you saying this? We're Christians. We're almost perfect. No, we're, he, he says this because he knows us. He knows the capacity that we have for this. The capacity that I have to spot the sawdust of a piece of sin in your life when I've got a log of that very sin in my own life. And isn't it amazing how terrible my sin looks on other people? 
I'm very accommodating toward it in my own life. But when I see it in somebody else's life, I'm harsh related to it. One of the things that's important to understand in this whole area of judging or having a critical spirit, it's important to examine the sins that we are most intolerant of in another person's life. Because sometimes we are most intolerant of the sins that are heavily represented in our own life. We recognize in others the sin or sins that we're dealing with in our own life. And very often when you look and say, man, this and that person and this and all, and then to stop and look at my own life and to realize the reason I recognize it so fast is I am so familiar with it. And so he says, why do you do that? How can you say to your brother, here, let me remove the speck from your own eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Uh, I remember one time Karen and I, Uh, we were relatively newly married and we were living in Napa and um, we had moved into from one house into another house and we were doing some work on it. And somehow I got a piece of metal embedded on the outside of my eye and it didn't go into the eye. And so this thing, and I'm blinking and I'm trying to wash it out and everything and then it's not moving. And so then I make an appointment to go in very rapidly to go in and see somebody. You know. And he's got this machine that looks like a lay. I mean, it, it's like this big bulb out here, and then it's got these layers down to like this little something kind of tweezer-like thing that he's going to come and grab it and pluck it out. And then he says, now, the most important thing is, you know what he said is that you don't blink. It's vital that you don't blink. So I see this like thing is ready to pierce right through my eye and into my brain. And the only upside of it is, is that I wouldn't have seen Andrew Bogut play in the playoffs. That I'm just kidding. Just kidding. I'm going to let it go. I love Andrew Bogut. Once you have had something in your eye, once you've had a plank removed from your own eye, you've done it yourself, then how a person knows that this person is okay to work on another person's eye is once you've had a plank removed from your own eye, you're going to deal very gently with somebody else's eye. And so where there isn't a gentleness, there isn't a love, there isn't a compassion, there isn't a concern then somebody's still dealing with a plank in their eye. And so the Lord says, Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. And so he speaks to us in all of this, the necessity of being wise, and uh, the idea is that we are never as Christians to force the things of God upon other people. Um, in, in, in both the, the swine and the dog, it's not talking about lassie here. It's talking about curs. It's talking about packs of dogs in the ancient world that would tear you from limb to limb if they got an opportunity to do so. So he's talking about unclean people. The imagery is of people who are unsaved and hostile toward the gospel or the things of God. And when they say, be quiet, don't tell me another word about God or the Bible or about Jesus, then we are to honor that. We are not to cast our pearls. These are precious things before people who have no appreciation for them at the moment and do not want to have an appreciation uh, for them. And then we see, look, we must honor people's free will in this regard and then wait for the day that God uh, touches their heart and brings them to a place where they will be eager to hear. I remember when I was a new Christian, there was a guy by the name of Hector, and he and I worked. I talked this morning a little bit about restoring a cable in Emeryville that had gotten wet, and we worked all these long hours, and we went over to, I I don't know, it was called the uh, Brown Derby or some kind of a place over there to grab a, a steak dinner and uh, the phone company was paying, right? All right. And so we went over to do that. And he actually brought up uh, the the subject of 
uh, spiritual things, you know. And so I said, well, you know, Jesus said, and this and that, and he just stopped. He said, you're ruining my meal. He said, I don't want to hear it. Don't you ever talk to me about that again. And that was that. I honored it. And I said, wow, my goodness. And, uh, but I honored that, and I have ever since. I never put people in a corner and say, you're going to listen to me whether, you know, I go into a hospital room, they can't throw me out of the room, and, but they're done, they're done, that's all. And so we don't force these precious things upon people if they are not interested in uh, hearing them. And so uh, honoring the Lord in this way, we're not to be known as being heavy-handed in that way. It's a privilege to hear the gospel. It's a privilege to hear the things of the Lord and to be able to respond uh, to those things. Now he moves on and, uh, and gives us a great encouragement concerning prayer. He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock, it shall be opened unto you. And so here's the third time that Jesus is addressing prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. And so obviously this is very important to him in our lives. And the first place that he addressed it was talking to us about how to pray and then what to pray and what's called the Lord's Supper. And then now he closes out this triunity related to prayer by giving us a great encouragement to prayer. The promises that he attaches to prayer here are so great that if these won't get a person to pray, then I don't know what will produce a prayer life. So notice what he says. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. Now understand he's speaking this to disciples. So if you're sitting there and say, okay, Lord, would you please turn my little Hugo out in the parking lot into a wonderful Lexus SUV and I'm asking and I'm receiving. I'm receiving it, Lord. I'm receiving it, Lord, right now. And I'm so excited. In fact, I'm going to leave the room right now to go see it out there. When he, it's not like a carte blanche where we just can write our own ticket. That's not what he's talking about. He's speaking to disciples, and he doesn't leave it up to us to to define what a disciple is. In the scriptures, a disciple is someone who is taken up our, Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. So that's what a disciple is. And so God's will is more important than our will. So there's always this idea that I'm asking for something, but it's submitted to the will of God. I don't know about you. I don't want him to give me anything as a result of prayer if, if that something is, is something that he doesn't want to do. I don't want, I, it would be like gi- giving me some kind of a, a weapon that I, I would probably do more damage with the silly thing if prayer didn't have the kind of perimeters that he places on it with us as disciples, I'd do more damage than, than good. So it is within the context of his will, and which is our greatest concern as disciples. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and him uh, who knocks, it will be opened. And then he talks about the willingness of God the Father to uh, answer our prayers. For what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? I mean, the greatest thing that we could ask of God is comparable to uh, him giving us a piece of bread. It's not like he's going to have to take a loan out or something. He's eager to bless us. Or if um, the son asks for a fish, will the father give him a serpent? No, he would never do that. And if you then, being evil, us as parents in comparison to uh, our Heavenly Father, if we know how to give good gifts to our children, then how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And this whole, when he talks about ask and seeking and knocking, it's in the present imperative, and it's talking about keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, because... There is a timing involved in God's answers to prayer. We can be asking for something that he is absolutely going to bring into our life, but it may not be the right moment. It may be the right moment six weeks from now or six months from now or six years from now. It doesn't mean he's not going to answer the prayer, but there is a a timing side uh, to all of this. Then he goes on to speak of what is known as the golden rule. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law 
and the prophets. And so this is the sanctified golden rule. There is a carnal golden rule. He who has the gold rules. And so there's a part of the world that operates under that. But think about this golden rule that Jesus has spoken as it's referred to here. Think about, I mean, what a master he is of encapsulating all of the law and the prophets into one sentence. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He said it's the law and the prophets, an encapsulation. Sometimes when we can be involved in a situation in our life where maybe the Bible doesn't give super specific instruction on what we're to do at this particular fork in the road or in this decision-making. This is a, a law or a rule that will serve us very well. What would I want someone to do for me in this situation and then to do it? And almost always we will find ourselves on the right side of the Word of God. If you are a new Christian here uh, tonight and you're learning the Bible and these things are coming into your life and you go, I don't know what the Bible says about that, While you're growing in your knowledge of the Bible, this will serve you very, very well. In this situation, what would you want somebody to do for you? And then uh, do that, and you will be very, very close to the Word of God and uh, how you are handling uh, the situation. Now, others have, and you'll oftentimes hear this if you, you know, stick around long enough, you'll, you'll hear people talk about Jesus's golden rule here in verse 12, and they'll say, well, you know, this predated Jesus in, in a lot of religions and a lot of teachers uh, prior to, to him speaking this, and, uh, and, and, and it, it, it's been declared in, in, in human history. Many other religious leaders have done that in, in decades, even sometimes centuries before Jesus came into the world. And so sometimes they'll quote the famous Rabbi Hillel, who declared, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow man. Uh, Confucius said, what you do not want done to you, do not do to others. The Hindu religion teaches, this is the sum of duty, do not to others, which if done to thee would cause thee pain. A Buddhist teaching declares, hurt not others with, what which, with that which pains you. The ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans taught much the same thing. Do not do to others the things which make you angry when you experience them at the hands of other people. Even the ancient Stoics declared, what you do not wish to be done to you, do not do to anyone else. All of that is absolutely fabulous. I'm not putting any of that down at all, but it does not even remotely rise to the height of what Jesus is calling us as disciples to do here. Yes, It has been taught by others earlier, but always in the negative. Do not do to others what you do not want done to you. But Jesus puts it in the positive. And what he's declaring here is that it is not enough to not be actively evil toward others, but but in order to represent him in the world, we must also be actively good. We have to, and Jesus takes it into a whole new dimension. And the point that he's making to us as disciples here is that maybe the disciples of other religions and other religious leaders can adequately represent their religion with a life of not doing harm to others, but that will never be enough for a Christian who is intent on properly representing God or the Bible or Jesus in the world, we must live a life of active good toward other people. Why? Because that is the life that Jesus lived. There is a great distinction between what others have taught historically on this issue and what Jesus uh, declares. And again, this is not the way to get to heaven. The golden rule is not the way to get to heaven. This is how we're to live because we're already Christians. And then we come to a passage that I looked at and we studied last uh, Sunday morning, not this morning, but the week before. And enter in by the narrow gate, Jesus taught, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many that uh, go in by it. And he's talking about the narrowness of salvation. It's found in Christ and in Christ alone. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So for a more thorough handling of it, I refer you to last week's uh, teaching. 
But I do want to mention one thing concerning this. Think about Jesus in terms of a religious leader, historically, how people would view him. If he only didn't say stuff like this, that salvation was narrow. He, and if he only didn't say, like in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. V, 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 singular, singular, singular. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. He would be the hero, religious leader of the whole world. It's, it's this, this issue of the narrowness of salvation that gets him in hot water concerning so many people. But Jesus is not concerned with being popular. He is concerned with the truth about salvation. And the truth about salvation is the way is narrow. And if that is the truth about salvation, then we must accept it and enter in through the narrow way that God has provided, and that is through faith in his Son. The issue is not broadness or narrowness. The issue is what is true. And the truth about salvation is that it is narrow and that it is found only in Christ. And I will say again before all of heaven and before all of you, I do not understand the argument or somehow the diminishing of Christ or the God of the Bible or the Bible itself over the fact that salvation happens to be narrow, that the truth of salvation happens to be narrow. I am so thankful that God has provided a salvation at all. Who do I think that I am that I can demand choices on this issue? I tell you, I pinch myself that God provided us with a Savior and that he worked by his Holy Spirit for so many long years to get a numbskull like me to the foot of the cross to put my faith in Christ. And I trust that that's uh, your testimony as well. Isn't it wonderful that we can be saved at all? Well, there's an obstacle to salvation. And the obstacle, I mean, if the way is narrow... And, and Jesus is clear related to the teaching, and he's very, very clear related to Well, then what, why is there any confusion on the issue? The confusion is because of false teachers and false prophets. So Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. A true prophet of God is one, a prophet is, of God is one who speaks for God. God calls him as a prophet. God gives them a message, and they declare that message faithfully from God. A false prophet is someone who is not called by God to be his messenger. God does not give him a message. He makes up his own message, and then he declares it on his own behalf, but claims to be representing God. And in the context that we're talking about is anyone that comes along and says there is any other way to be saved other than faith in Christ or that salvation is found on a broad road, accessed through many gates, wide and etc., then they are a false teacher. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, and so they know how to give the outward appearance of looking like a Christian, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves, i.e., they are very, very dangerous to people, and they are more dangerous than a physical wolf that could tear us from limb to limb because they're going to try and destroy people spiritually concerning the most important decision that we make in life in which our eternities hang in the balance. So how do we identify? These false prophets are so dangerous. How do we identify a false prophet? You will know them by their fruits, by their life. Uh, the life that they live, not by, and so he says, do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad uh, fruit. A good tree cannot bear uh, bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. And so you know a tree by its fruit. When you go out to your yard and you pull a fig off of that tree, what do you say? Oh, I love this persimmon tree. No, you don't. you got a fig tree, the fruit. And so when you look at false teachers or false prophets, we identify them by their fruit. 
They carry a message that is contrary to the Bible and what the Bible reveals about God and Jesus, or they deliver a message, but they live a life that is not consistent with that message. And so uh, the, the, what comes out of their not life, not their appearance, but what comes out of their mouth, both verbally and the life that they're living. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In other words, this is the end of the false prophet, uh, a fiery judgment. And the idea is don't follow a false prophet where they want to lead you. They're headed to judgment. And therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Jesus said, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. This is alarming, this passage, because it speaks about a tremendous self-deception that uh, can be on people. And it's basically talking about people who um, they know the Word or they, they hear the Word, but they don't obey the Word of God. Well, let me, let me just go further into it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So if a person says, is constantly talking verbally, yes, Jesus is my Lord, 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 and singing and all of these things to God or whatever they do verbally, but their life is not marked by uh, obedience, then the Lord says that they are not one of his disciples. Again, talking about a tree being known not by their words. It's not just talking about false prophets, but it's talking about being self-deceived concerning salvation in a person's life. So a person who says all the right things, but they live a life that is contrary to the word of God, then, uh, then uh, Jesus says they're not going to enter in the kingdom of heaven. Then alarmingly in verse 22, he, he begins it by saying many. There are many in this condition. I tell you, it's, it's, uh, it's frightening to think about that. Many will say to me in that day when they one day stand before Jesus, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So here is a group of people and a group of people who know how to say all the right things, a group of people who are even involved in religious work, and yet in the nitty-gritty of their life, the daily of their life, they practice lawlessness. Their life is lived contrary to what God declares should be of a teacher, again, of a Christian. Again, the fruit reveals what we are, not what we say or what we do in terms of religious activity. Now, I would never, the, the Bible, all the way through the Bible, the tone of the Bible is to affirm us in the security of our salvation. I would never want to ever, 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 I wouldn't be able to rest if I took someone who was legitimately saved and in any way caused them to begin to doubt their salvation just because they were less than perfect or they struggle with a sin, we're all less than perfect as Christians. We all struggle with sin. He's talking about someone who practices lawlessness. They don't care. They've settled into this. They've developed their own Christianity, so to speak, where they can do and say all these things over here, compartmentalizing it, and then live a wicked life over here. And somehow uh, that's the kind of Christian that the Holy Spirit produces. It's impossible for God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit to come into a human life and for that life to remain as it once was. That life will be changed and our lives will be marked by obedience. The Holy Spirit gives us the will to do and the power to do of His good pleasure. But I do want to say that if any of us sits here tonight and you say, I know all of the words... I know all of the Lord, Lord. I know all of the Christian lingo. I know all of the hymns by heart. I've memorized half of the Bible. I know how, I know how to do good works. I've been on mission trips and whatever you might want to call. But your life is characterized by practicing lawlessness, a life that is marked by deliberate rebellion against the Word of God. That is a self-deception concerning salvation and one that is so common and so serious that Jesus includes it in this sermon. Isn't that something? I mean, he, he says, I'm not going to finish this sermon until we address this subject because many are fooled in this way. And then as we saw this morning and studied in, in depth, 
Now, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And the greatest fall of all is not reserved for this life. It is reserved for the life to come, the importance of having a Christian life. You know, it's so goofy. We're so concerned about numbers in the church and how big is the church and are we going to scare anybody away that we're, we are, have the dangerous pastors of fashioning a Christianity within the culture that looks nothing like the demands of Christianity in the Bible. It's a very weak and flabby thing. It means something to be a Christian. It means something to tell people, I am a Christian. I am born again. I am one of Jesus' disciples. And part of what that means is to be living a life in the power of the Spirit that is distinctive, that is different in a secular world, also in the, the religious uh, world. And so important that our lives are marked by the proper saying but also in the proper believing, but also the proper doing. And so it was when Jesus had finished these uh, sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. It wasn't just the content of what he taught, but it was with the authority with which he taught it. As I mentioned this morning, and I will close with this to give you hope, um, the... In, in that time, the rabbis were so afraid of making a stand on particular doctrines for fear of losing their following or their supporters that they would then say, well, you know, on the issue of divorce or on the issue of fasting or on the issue of this and that, Rabbi Hillel says this, Rabbi Shimei says uh, this over here, and they'd lay out all of the views of the various scribes and the various rabbis and then in essence say, now you conclude for yourself. They keep their own view a secret, and that way they could keep everybody happy and be popular with everyone. Jesus comes on the scene. Do you see any wishy-washiness in this sermon? Clear as a bell, and yet as loving as can be. That's a beautiful sermon. And they realized we have heard something not only amazing in its content, but taught with an authority that we're not used to. And, of course, they were listening to the authority of God Almighty and the person of Jesus, the Son of God and God the Son. Let's stand together and we'll close tonight.